Jonathan. Hi, Sarah. Can I begin with a very personal question? Mm, it depends on what it is. <laughs> All right, go ahead. How old are you? Ah, okay, I'm, I'm 41. Well, you'll be pleased or not to know that in just four years' time, recruitment agencies in France will consider you a senior, a senior. A senior? Really? Yeah. Wow, I knew I wasn't a millennial or even younger, but I didn't realize I was that bad. I don't feel that old. No, I don't feel that old either. And I'm heading towards 55. It, it also depends on how old you feel. Uh, recent studies show that women see themselves as senior when they're about 70, men aged 68, but society in general in France is a bit less forgiving. For example, France's pension fund considers your senior when you're 65, mm. the statistics office when you're 55, the employment office and marketing agencies consider your senior when you're 50. And the numbers keep going down. Yeah. So uh, I'm heading towards being a senior. In Interesting. Um, but what, what's this all about? Well, we're talking a lot about what it means to be a senior at the moment because of the government's pension reform. One of the aspects that's worrying people is the government's plan to get people to work that bit longer. But the thing is, if you are a senior, you're more likely to be out of work. Studies show that only one out of three people aged over 60 is in work here in France compared to an EU average of 45%. Wait, one out of three? That's not very many people over the age of 60 who are working. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. I guess if you're unemployed at 60, you're just then going to be unemployed that much longer um, until you get a full pension. Um, you did mention, of course, yeah, that recruitment agencies consider your senior at 45. In that case, it's not about retirement, though. I guess you're just less employable. Let's say you become, in their eyes, a bit less attractive. There is this stereotype in France that older people cost that much more to employ and they're less flexible. What's interesting is that a French engineering company called Assistem is showing that that isn't necessarily the case and that seniors can bring added value to a company. A few years ago, it created a team of older experts. They operate like consultants on Assistem's many international engineering projects, and they're known as space cowboys. Uh, like that movie where what it was like retired NASA scientists called back because they were the only ones who could repair an old Soviet satellite. Exactly. In this case, they're not talking about bringing people back out of retirement, just hiring people on the whole average age 55 with a lot of expertise. The team intervenes in, for example, international bids. It accompanies younger teams working on major projects. The brains behind Space Cowboys is Hubert Labourdette, who works with Assistem, and he himself was laid off when he was in his late 40s, obviously from another company. Now, I met him along with Andrew Whiting, who's a nuclear engineer and was one of the first Space Cowboys to be recruited five years ago. I am close to 60 now. I have a, a career at uh, the international level with, uh, with a lot of travel, and I have worked in many complex projects. So tell me a bit about the Space Cowboys. It's high-level uh, people between 46 and uh, more than 60. I have a guy who is 67 uh, years old now. I have people coming from the Navy, people who was a company director before. So I have various people, but they have all the same spirit. Help the other and uh, be an added value for the company. The average age is about 55. That means that these people are considered to be what we call in France, senior. So this was actually a deliberate choice to privilege, perhaps, the skills of older people. Just tell me, what was your motivation? My motivation was the needs of the customer to have seniority in front of them. For international business, you need people with a lot of experience, 
people who are international, uh, not only uh, who speak English, but also who have knowledge about the culture of the different, uh, we can say, customers, and also people who are available to work abroad without big constraints on the family point of view. So it, it can be seen as a good thing? Yes, obviously. It's an added value for us. To be able to send, for example, in Saudi two senior guys in front of the Saudi state is an advantage for us because those people have a very high level of expertise and they are autonomous, obviously. So for us, seniority is an added value. Andrew, you are a space cowboy. I'm 62 right now, but I was 55 or so or 56 when, when I met Hubert and he offered me a post with that system. In France especially, 62, most people are thinking about retirement. I've thought about it and I will probably get there at some point, but uh, I've still got a lot to offer and I would like to continue to work as long as I can. Some companies seem to hesitate to employ people when they're over the age of 50. Only one out of three people over the age of 60 in France is in employment, whereas the European average is about 45%. Clearly there's some kind of problem here, right? Oh, the stereotype is very simple. Huh? They are too expensive. They are not up-to-date, people who are not digital. It's completely false, in fact. You have the stereotype of people who know everything and don't listen. Uh, in fact, it's absolutely not the case of Space Cowboy. And I suspect that a lot of seniors are not in line with the stereotype too. Andrew, what differences have you noticed in the way that people in a corporate environment look at people who are slightly older? I've worked in France since I was 25, 26, so the last 37, 38 years. And in the electronics industry, I was, I was laid off. One of the reasons, because they were cutting back and they needed to reduce expenses. And as I was an experienced sales engineer, I was one of the first to get the chop. So I think, you know, the bottom line is, is what they looked at. It's very short term because a lot of tacit knowledge and experience walks out the door when people get laid off or get paid off. So I think people are starting to, to learn from their mistakes. Certainly in the nuclear industry in France, you know, a lot of people have, were either moved away or they retired and they're now running into this problem of lack of experience and we'll look at Flamorville as an example I mean the, all the problems they've incurred at Flamorville are directly related to the lack of continuity and the transfer of knowledge from the older generation to the younger generation We had a lot of difficulty with our steel industry, with our automotive industry and in this context the manager of those companies chose to, uh, to cut uh, a lot of team uh, with all the people more than 53 years and it was a big mistake because they have lost a lot of knowledge within the company. What was the idea of cutting those jobs? Ah, for them, it was a pure uh, figure approach. They cost more money, so you get rid of them. You know, you go for an interview and they say, um, or they don't even call you for an interview. They say, you've got a good CV, but sorry, you're too expensive. You know, and how do you know? We haven't talked about salary yet, so how can you make that assumption? But you don't get the chance. So there is a lot of ageism. It's a very big mistake, and uh, we have now uh, done the demonstration that we can provide really an added value uh, with these uh, seniorities. One of the advantages of, of the Space Cowboys is you, you get to work on a diversity of projects. They're very interesting, very challenging projects, it, normally large, complex projects, international projects. So I've worked on three or four projects uh, in France. One got me to work in Murawa and Tahiti for a month. I've been working uh, for another French company on the Hinkley Point, the nuclear project, and I'm now working on the ITER project for Momentum down in Kadarash. So... You know, every two or three years you get to change and move on to a, a new challenge. That's what's passionate for me. 
And are you typical of the space cowboys in not having the family ties, being free to move, always having a bit of a, a suitcase ready? But I should think all of us are like that. Our children are at a certain age they've left home or you know, we, we don't have family ties to that extent where we have to be here during the week and at weekends so that gives a lot more flexibility to Hubert to assign us to projects. So do you think this is a model that could be rolled out in other companies in France? I think we can reproduce uh, Space Cowboy in other companies, not exactly on the same model, but we have the basic a senior is an added value for the company and after you have to find the best place for them and to find a good environment and uh, a good team. But this concept has to be uh, applied for all of the company, I think. Do you think generally that the mentality in France is changing towards what senior people over the age of 50 can bring to a company? Yes, I hope that we contribute to this evolution, uh, but I am sure that uh, we have this evolution in the people. You have also another aspect, is the flexibility of, uh, of the work in France. Now you have many types of contracts. It's authorized uh, a lot of companies to have senior on board. Uh, because we are, we are less and less in long-term contracts. We are more and more in various ways to collaborate. It could be short-term, but it could be also uh, subcontracting or partnership, and it's helped us also to promote this uh, seniority in, in the different company. And do you have women on board? Unfortunately not. Uh, it's a little bit difficult because, in fact, you know that in France you have not so many women in uh, engineering. And this um, type of seniority, you have less women. So it's my fifth tentative to have a woman without success. But I'm still working on, and I want to have women on board. Yeah, it's clear yeah. for me. So clearly there, there's a bit more work to be done on getting women, more women or just any women, into this field. Um, but generally, what is France doing on a government level? I mean, here we're seeing a company do it. But how, on the government level, what is, what is happening to encourage companies to, say, hire more seniors? Well, by law, companies in France with more than 50 employees have to have some kind of action plan for helping people remain in work as they get that bit older. And there are fines if they don't. In reality, sometimes companies just prefer to pay the fine. Mm, it's cheaper that way or it, easier, ex I guess. Exactly. And it is. it obviously has a lot to do with cost, doesn't it, money? The state offers financial incentives to companies hiring people over the age of 45. And there's also a short-term contract, which is specifically for people aged 57 and over. But as we've heard, France really needs a change in mentalities if more people over the age of 50 are going to get hired. And of course, all of that mustn't be to the detriment of giving jobs to younger people. So getting that balance right between allowing older people to stay in jobs or find employment and also giving jobs to the younger generation, it's a very, very fine balancing act. And I think the person who could you know, solve that equation well could be the next president. All right, Alison, now we're going to talk about the SMIG. You mean the SMIC? No, the SMIG. There's also the SMAG. Oh. Um, these are all acronyms, of uh, course. France is full of acronyms. Yeah, for sure. When they can, there's an acronym. Um, but anyway, that's getting off subject. The SMIG. This was France's very first minimum wage. It was passed on February 11th, 1950. So 70 years ago this week. Yeah. Today, the minimum wage here in France is 10 euros, 15 cents an hour before tax or 1,540 euros a month before tax. Right. And, and apparently 13.5% of the French workforce, that's 2.3 million people, earn the SMIC, um, the minimum wage. So the SMIG 
its predecessor was put in place by the centrist coalition government after World War II. So SMIG, S-M-I-G, what does that stand for? Okay, so it's the Salaire Minimum Interprofessionnel Garantie, the minimum guaranteed salary for all professions. Mm. So introduced in 1950, though the groundwork had been laid by the Vichy government during the war, there was a charter in 1941 referring to a living minimum wage, um, though with the recognition that the cost of living isn't the same everywhere in France. So at the time, the country was divided into 20 zones, each with its own minimum wage, though counted down from Paris, which I guess had the highest cost of living. That was zone zero. And still does. Yeah, yeah. The zone system actually only disappeared in May 1968. At the time, there were only two zones left. Now there aren't any at all. Anyway, so the SMIG was passed and uh, was put in place in October 1950. And so back then, how much was the SMIG worth? Um, so it was 78 francs an hour in the Paris region. Now, these are old francs yeah. um, and the equivalent about two euros an hour. The government assumed that people worked 45 hours a week. That would provide 15,210 francs a month in Paris, about 401 euros. Um, incidentally, the SMIG didn't apply to farmers. They got a separate lower minimum wage called the SMAG. Ooh, another acronym. <laughs> yeah. So the SMIG was replaced by the SMIC in 1970. That's the Salaire Minimum Interprofessionnel de Croissance. So that G was replaced by a C, the guarantee replaced by a croissance, which is growth. And the idea there that the new minimum wage was indexed to wages in the country instead of prices, because wages were increasing faster than prices were increasing. Um, also, at the time in 1970, there was the introduction of this minimum um, revenue for the very poor. Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like a really important measure yeah, for, absolutely. for, you know, protecting people from really falling into poverty. Although, interestingly, Sarah, one of the things about this MIG today is that because the government gives employers tax breaks when they hire people at the minimum wage, perversely, it means that there is no real incentive to pay anymore. Yeah, I mean, unless it's much more, so it's a very basic amount. So ultimately, we're really talking about a minimum wage. Let's go back now to the yellow vests. Do you remember them? Yeah, they haven't removed their yellow vest, have they? They still protest more or less every Saturday in various towns up and down France. Yeah, yeah. Though last year the movement was bigger. It was founded, of course, in November of 2018, initially sparked as a protest against a diesel tax, but it quickly turned into this larger, very grassroots movements against inequality in France and a feeling of a lack of representation in government. Many of the protesters are demanding what they call a RIC, which is a direct voting uh, referendum on laws. The government then launched what was called a grand débat, a great debate, to address some of those issues. Yeah, and there were, you know, surveys online, meetings organized all around the country. It was a pretty big deal last year, but it fell kind of flat because there were few, if any, commitments by the government following up on that. Today now, though, we have the Citizen Climate Assembly. This was an uh, initiative introduced by Macron this year, the president. The idea is to bring citizen input to the climate debate 
and what France should be doing about it. Because France is committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions by at least 40% compared to 1990. And with this assembly, it's meant to be in a spirit of social justice. Yeah, so the idea of a citizen assembly is not new. Um, For example, Ireland did this for their abortion debate before that was put to a referendum. The idea is you gather citizens. In this case, it's 150 people. They were pulled from a random group of French people and then chosen to represent uh, the demographic makeup of France, so chosen by age, income, and their geographic location, for example. They're meeting, um, and they've already started, through this spring for seven weekends in Paris to address various aspects of climate change. And the idea is that they'll come up with proposals to present to the government, to parliament, at the end of the whole thing. Mathilde Imer is a climate activist and an expert on participative democracy. She was tapped to be on the steering committee of this assembly. For her, she sees it as really different from the Grand Débat coming out of the Yellow Vest movement. For one thing, she says the government is engaged. By nature, skeptical, though, uh, you know, she is still embracing it to see where it can go. I spoke to her ahead of the fifth weekend of discussions. She says this kind of participation isn't new in France on a local level, but nationally, it's almost revolutionary. In France, the national level is quite uh, close and quite uh, monarchic in a way. You have a strong president who makes yeah. decisions with the parliament currently, especially that has a majority, the decisions just get passed. Yeah. And that's also why we have in France, but I think it's also the case in a lot of European countries, a crisis of democracy. Maybe the fact that France is one of the most monarchic in a way could explain why we, we tried something like so innovative and so big because the crisis of the yellow vest was also a crisis of democracy, that where people coming in the street to say we have no voice anymore in the parliament or we don't have the impression to have a voice. And that's why they were uh, proposing citizen assembly on what we call the RIC, the citizen initiative referendum. That's yeah, like people wanted to just vote directly on laws, not have any legislators in between them and the, yeah. and the laws. Yeah, so the citizen assembly is a way to maybe reconnect the representative democracy and the citizens. In a way, it's a way to reconnect to the lawmaker, to a representative. And that's quite important also because it's not to say we want to oppose two kinds of democracy. It's just a way to update our democracy. So it's taken account the fact that first, citizens are much more high educated than before. And second, they are used to participate through new social network and other kind of process. So it's hard to say to the people today, well, you vote every five years and that's it. So it's a way also to update the democracy. So so the idea of this assembly then is there is some accountability. You guys aren't just sitting around talking and saying, here's some ideas. And the government says, oh, great. okay, we got your input. Moving on. There's actually something that's going to come out of this. Yeah, there is an engagement of the French government. The French president took it publicly to take the proposition without filter to the referendum, to parliament. And in the mission letter that is signed by the prime minister, you can see also that. As somebody who, you know, believes in citizen participation, democracy, and as a climate activist who I imagine is by nature maybe a bit skeptical. This seems to be a process that at least you're, I mean, you're involved in the directing committee of it. You're on board with it. This might be the way forward, you think, for participative democracy in France? Yeah, I think that's a great solution to the climate and democratic uh, crisis we face. But there is one condition. 
that the government respect his engagements. And that's at the end of the process. Yeah, so we will have to see. But what I can see is also that at the end of the first weekend, which was on the scientific diagnosis on climate change, most of the citizens of the Citizen Assembly came to us to tell us, well, I was aware there were a problem with climate change, but I was not aware it was so urgent. So I'm a bit worried, and this is very important because I think this means that in France, the citizens are not aware about that. And we have to create a big debate, a big conversation to make sure that the proposition that the Citizen Assembly uh, will come up can have the support of the French citizens. And this is why the referendum is important. So, so you're looking for a referendum to come out of this, not just a parliamentary debate over a law that gets passed in Parliament. You're hoping that the citizens are going to be voting directly. Personally, I do, because I think that's a way to create this conversation. But I think that the citizens that have to choose which of the measures they want to propose to a referendum. Because referendums can be very tricky, as we've seen. Sure, I think the big difference with a Brexit referendum and this one is... First, the question is coming from citizens and not from the uh, president or the government. And second, there is a deliberative process before. So you've been at this now for a few weeks, um, and there's still a few weeks to go. What has been the most surprising thing to you? The first one is the engagement of the citizen of the convention, the member of the convention. Some of them came and they were quite skeptic at the very beginning. They were thinking it was a joke. They were quite against also uh, the French government, so a bit skeptical because it was an inspired the French president. So we have a mix of different kind of people. And they're really like anti in the game, as we say in France. And they are working really quite a lot in, in, in the, during the session, but of course also between the session. They are going to meet their mayors, to meet uh, farmers, to meet all the people that are around them, to get ideas, to promote the citizen assembly, but just also to just learn about what means climate change for the citizen in France and what can we do against that. So this assembly on the climate, you know, you said let's wait and see how it's actually taken in by the government and and acted on. That's going to be the proof of it. But ultimately, it's 150 people. I don't know how many people in France right now really know this is even going on. It seems to me that there are still a lot of limitations on this kind of participative democracy. Well, the citizens of the assembly are doing quite a lot of stuff where they're going back home in their region all over France. So they're creating debates, events, meetings. A way to see that is that the, the media that are the most influenced on the convention is what we call the PQR, the, the regional press. Yeah, the, the regional newspapers, the regional radio. Exactly. And to answer the question about how to spread in the society, I think that's the big question, and that's why um, I consider a referendum should be an issue. Again, because a referendum, it's all the citizens that can vote on the proposition that has been done through deliberation by 150 citizens that are representative of the society. That means it's a combination of their work and the French population. Of course, it's risky, it's more risky, but um, at one point, I think with the climate urgency, we maybe have to take risk. Let's see if the citizens of the convention want to take this risk, and if yes, on which kind of uh, measures they're going to focus to do so. So plenty more participative democracy, um, but 
Tell me, Sarah, what actually is this assembly doing? Right, yeah. So, I mean, the concept is there, but what are they actually doing? So, really, what they're doing initially is they're hearing from a lot of people, people coming in to address the assembly, um, people from the car industry, NGOs, experts on nuclear energy, just a lot of just experts giving them information. And then after, they're taking this information and, and discussing it amongst themselves, um, divided up into five main groups, housing, food, transport, consumption, and production. All of this, of course, how we use energy and how we create carbon. Um, the idea, of course, is to then decide what can be put to a referendum, what should be put to laws. It's an interesting concept. Yeah, and it's inspiring similar initiatives in the UK, for example, which has made it a commitment to being carbon neutral by 2050. They've just held their first citizens' climate assembly pretty much along the same lines as France. Big difference, however, is that the government is not involved in that one. Right, right. And that's what Mathilde was saying, is she at least has some faith in this process right now of the government is committed. Interestingly, she said that they've had observers already from all over Europe, people from Spain, the UK, everywhere, who are really interested in how this process is working as possibly, possibly a way to address these crises of democracy that we have around Europe. And that's all for this week. Today's programme was mixed by Erwan Rom. If you liked it, why not subscribe to Spotlight on France wherever you get your podcasts. You could also drop us a line, spotlight.france at rfi.fr.